We're going to read God's word now. Um, The first couple of readings are just two short verses out of Proverbs. This one's from Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. And Proverbs 21, verse 23 says, Those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. Now I'm going to read from Matthew, which is in the New Testament. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Well, we're three parts into our sermon series on unfashionable Christian virtues, and today we're talking about the unfashionable Christian virtue of restraint. Restraint is the ability to regulate your emotions or your thoughts or your actions in the face of desire. So it's actually necessary for a healthy life. Restraint, it's actually a cognitive process that psychologists look at. Uh, You need restraint to regulate your own behaviour. It stops you from overindulging. It stops you from achieving, it helps you to achieve specific goals in your life. So, uh, for example, as a kid, I used to restrain myself from TV so that I could practice my viola more. There's even a newspaper article in the Heidelberger from 1993 that says Peter Caroline doesn't watch TV so that he can practice his viola. Very embarrassing. In the, in the martial arts movies, if you might have watched them, uh, you know, the, the martial arts uh, expert will always talk about, um, you know, all the skills you need to fight. In, but then the, the, the expert that's restrained is the really superior one. So there's this Persian martial arts master called Soki Bizad Ahmadi who famously said, karate training will make you strong and confident, but restraint will make you respect it. Uh, the thing about restraint is that there's a lot that needs to be clarified. 
So is it the same, for example, as being frugal? Is it the same as self-sacrifice? What are the dangers of restraint? The Greek philosopher Aristotle thought that self-control and restraint led to all the other virtues. He said that if you place limits on your desires, then you can pursue all the virtues. And he said the flawed person, the unvirtuous person, is the person whose desire desires rule over them. And if this is the case, then our whole culture is stacked up against us because if you think about capitalism, capitalism is the economic system that we live in, that we breathe, and the engine of capitalism is desire. If you want it, you get it. If you want it, you do it. So I say that restraint is unfashionable because it's completely countercultural to limit yourself in the face of desire. A, a famous moral philosopher called Alastair McIntyre wrote a book in the early 1980s, which I've got called After Virtue. And he basically says, um, we have lost the ability to think about virtue now. Um, and it's like there are fragments left in the West of, of, of this understanding of virtue. And this means that a concept like restraint seems completely ridiculous. He says to talk about limits on sex or limits on consumption or limits on, on anything seems old-fashioned because people have no framework to even think about this. Today, in, in the West, the only reason, there seems to be about three reasons why people would exercise restraint. First of all, they might exercise restraint because something is illegal. But even then, people are not that restrained, are they? I remember, can you remember um, about seven or eight years ago when everyone was into bit torrenting and um, file sh- you know, going on all those file sharing sites and downloading the TV series like they download Lost? the episode series seven of lust because you know that was the time we were doing it these days we've got netflix we don't need to and so it's amazing how many christians i know pastors who would be just illegally downloading series, and they'd say oh it's not really illegal you know remember those excuses so anyway the law can hold us back a little bit but not not that much secondly uh the in the west these days you might um be restrained because because there's some progressive secular um, orthodoxy that you're, you know, that you're sticking to. So you might be restrained because you don't want to oppress somebody else or because you don't want to hurt someone else's feelings or you might be restrained because you don't want to hurt the environment. So there is some kind of a moral framework there, um, which is not all bad, um, but it doesn't go very far, does it? And then we're, thirdly, we're restrained because in the West because actually we're meeting some other desire. So we might be restrained um, with what we eat because we want to meet the, the desire to be beautiful over here. We've got some image of ourselves. So we, we, we don't eat you know, too many burgers or whatever it is you know, because we, we think we're going to look beautiful. So actually we're not really being virtuous in that sense. Um, so... What does the Bible, though, have to say about restraint? This morning I'm going to argue that from our passages um, that we've got in the booklet there, um, there are really three things we, we can take away from what, what, what Christians should think about restraint. 
And that is that in the Bible, we have a script for restraint, that we also have a shield in restraint, and we have a sight for restraint. A script, a shield, and a sight. So let's have a look at this. So we've got a script for restraint. So when exercising restraint, we need guidance. Restraint is not a Christian virtue unless it has the priorities of the gospel. So the Bible we can think of as a kind of a script that shows us how to think about what to be restrained with. It shows us why and how we should be restrained. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, who was not a Christian, but he was pre-Christian, said that the kind of limits you place on yourself will depend on the logos that you have. He said that. So where your, logo, your logos is your philosophy or your truth system. And as Christians, we have the, the logos, capital T, capital L, who is Jesus Christ himself. And we have the word as it is revealed in the scriptures, where the logos means is translated as the word. So let's see how the logos, or the word of God, determines Jesus' own limits uh, as um, he's led into the desert and tempted by the devil. Because Jesus is led in in that big passage from Matthew 4 into the desert by the Holy Spirit so that he can be tempted by the devil. And he's fasted. So fasted for, for 40 days and nights. He's been restrained in his food and drink and that's a kind of extreme form of restraint isn't it and I'm going to talk a bit more about fasting a bit later he says he was hungry verse 2 and then we see the devil the tempter try and offer false idols to him false comfort to Jesus and 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 the devil's trying to get Jesus to change the course of his life if you are the son of God tell these stones you know break your hunger fast tell these stones to become bread And Jesus answers in verse 4, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here he quotes from the Bible, Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. When Israel was in the desert, God taught them a spiritual lesson by causing them to be without food for a time and then feeding them later. And the lesson was, there are more important things in life than having your physical needs met, having material provision Obedience to God is more important than self-gratification. That was a lesson for Israel. So Jesus' words here are paradoxical in a way because God's words don't actually fill your stomach as such. But what it does do is it forces you to reassess your priorities and to realise that obedience to God is more important than even food. So Jesus, when he quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, it shows us that he understood his experience of hunger as being God's will for him at that time, and therefore that he should not avoid um, avoid feeling hungry, and that um, to be self-indulgent and to use his power to turn the rocks into bread was to miss the point. To do that would be to call in question God's priorities and to set himself at odds with God's plan. As God's son, Jesus must um, trust and obey his father. So see how the Bible is providing a script for Jesus for how he should be restrained and where he should hold back. And this continues in the passage in Matthew 4. The devil tries to join 
in on the theological discussion. So the devil um, quotes um, Psalm 91, um, verse 11 to 12. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, here's the psalm, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answers him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, quoting Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, verse 16. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and, and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, quoting the Bible, quoting Deuteronomy again, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so the devil leaves him and the angels come and attend to Jesus. So as you meditate on the scriptures, on your Bible, in your life, you might think about it as a way to direct you in your restraint in your life, in how you are to be restrained. Exercise the virtue of restraint. What you do with your time, what you do with your body, what you do with your words, what you do with your money. And we have to be really careful not to believe the lies of the devil the devil who will tell us, who will whisper to us temptations to say, you could use your wealth this way or that way or your body this way or that way in ways that are not godly at all. And how do we know how to respond? Well, we have the Bible. We have, we have a way. And we're to pray and ask God to help us. And this is part of being a mature Christian is to learn, grow in knowledge of the scriptures for this purpose, if only to know how to be restrained in our life. You can seek out the support of the community in helping you understand. So we have a script. We also have a shield in restraint. So restraint becomes like a shield against idols. See, restraint is not just about resisting temptation. In fact, the fact the virtue of restraint is actually usually more applied as a proactive virtue where you might desire something, but so that you don't over-desire it, you say, no. Because to over-desire anything is to turn it into an idol. Most things are worth loving, but most things, no, no thing should be over-loved, only God should be our, our highest priority in our love. So when, when we, when we over-desire something, we love it in a way that it's not meant to be loved. We love it to the point of worshipping. So restraint becomes a way to stop us from worshipping things that shouldn't be worshipped. Restraint and the more extreme forms of restraint, like fasting, what it does is it refocuses our worship away from the things that we shouldn't be worshipping back onto God so that we don't succumb to our idols. So think again about Jesus being tempted in the desert. We see the devil tempting him, the idol of worldly power and fame. And Jesus uses restraint against a shield against it. The devil says, you can rule the world and you're gonna, everyone's going to bow down to you. And Jesus holds up his shield of restraint and says, no, I'm not going to. I will do what my Father in heaven says. My identity is with God. Fasting, it's, it's an extreme act of restraint, but it's not always a virtue. It's not a Christian virtue when it's in the context of, say, just losing weight or to look thinner. It's a Christian virtue when it's done voluntarily 
as a way to draw closer to God. Motive is what is important. So the very first statement that Jesus makes about fasting in the Bible, um, he, he talks about motive. Matthew 6, verse 16 to 18, he warns us not to be performative in our fasting. He says, don't, don't fast and then show off to, to people. In fact, people shouldn't even know that you're fasting. Using restraint to somehow boost your ego is a sign of false religion. This is not virtuous. We can also use fasting to try and manipulate God. So by fasting, we're sort of saying we're, we're having a hunger strike. God, I'm going to not eat until you do what I say. This is not how fasting or, or any kind of restraint is a virtue. Fasting must always centre on God. We should be like the prophetess Anna, who worshipped with fasting, it says in Luke 2, verse 37. Or the Christians in Antioch, as recorded in Acts 13, who were fasting and worshipping the Lord. God is the focus. God, the worship of God is the primary focus of that kind of extreme restraint. But also has a second and a third benefit as well. More than any other spiritual discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. Because what we do as human beings is we use comforts and we use distractions and addictions to mask the things that control us. But in fasting, all these things come to the surface. If pride controls you, it will be revealed almost immediately. Your soul will be humbled as King David wrote in Psalm 69, verse 10. If you are controlled by anger, bitterness and jealousy, or jealousy, or fear, they will surface during fasting. If your anger comes to the surface in fasting, you can rejoice in the knowledge that because you know um, God is working in you, he's working inside of you to bring healing about in your, in your life. A third spiritual benefit of fasting is that it helps you to keep balance in your life. Perhaps you had allowed unimportant things to take precedence in your life. You quickly start to crave the things you don't need until you're enslaved by them. Paul wrote, uh, so you can see on your booklet on page 5, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23, well there's a, there's a very similar verse, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, that says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And demanding our rights to have our desires met is what drives our culture. This is why a lack of restraint reveals actually arrogance. A person without restraint is saying, I have the right, I am my own true authority, I, I demand it now. But what's actually happened is desire has become the true authority. So what, so what fasting does is it helps to keep our desires correctly channeled. Paul wrote, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, I strike a blow to my body and make it a slave. And that's what fasting achieves in an extreme kind of form. Likewise, King David wrote, I afflicted myself with fasting in Psalm 35, verse 13. So in a strange way, extreme restraint in fasting brings freedom. And there are many other benefits of, of extreme restraint in fasting. 
like that are spiritual that you have an increased effectiveness in your intercessory prayer many people will testify to that you will find it helps you seek guidance from god you'll have increased concentration in your spiritual life and god seems to speak powerfully to us in our fasting in, in the, and, and give us revelation um, god rewards those who seek him like this so you, what you want to ask yourself is this what things do you love that perhaps you overlove, or what things do you desire that perhaps you overdesire? It could be sport and fitness. It could be buying gear, certain gear. It could be buying music gear. That's my thing that I will I confess to overdesiring. I, I, I product product lust. I, I I see stuff in music shops or online. You know how you get marketed on Facebook, the things that Facebook seems to magically know what you're into, and I just click on it, oh, another microphone, cool, you know, another keyboard. Perhaps you over-desire another person. Perhaps you over-desire your own children. Many people worship their family. Putting restraint on your parenting is a way to not idolise your children. This means not indulging your children in anything that they want, saying no to your children, putting up boundaries with your children. All this is good for them, and it's actually good for you too, for your spiritual life and for their spiritual life. Being restrained with someone you romantically love so that you don't over-desire them is to not allow yourself to expect them to meet all of your needs or to be the solution to all of your problems. Being restrained with buying gear, if buying stuff is what you love and too much, is to say, I, you know, I could have that um, new thing for my car, but I'm going to hold off because I don't need it. Not because it's sinful to have it, but because I don't want fulfilling that desire to rule over me. The virtue of restraint has a powerful effect of rightly reinforcing our identity as children of God. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Why do you think God imposed on them one, um, one act of restraint? He said, you know, you can do whatever you like, but just don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's because he wanted them to see that God is enough. So I choose to be restrained from desiring another person because God loves me and this is what matters the most. I choose to be restrained from drinking too much alcohol because I don't need the false comfort. The love and grace God gives me is comfort enough. I choose to be restrained in how I spend my money because I don't need the status of these expensive clothes or cars or this this expensive stuff in my house or whatever it is, the status I have as a forgiven child of God is status enough. There are many fashionable acts of restraint that we have in our culture that are a kind of performative self-sacrifice. Um, and not necessarily all bad, such as dry July or Feb fast. They're, they're not necessarily bad things, but restraint is only a Christian virtue if it leads to forgetting yourself and focusing on God. Otherwise, it's narcissistic. It's just personal performance. So we have a script for restraint in the Bible and we have a shield for restraint against idols. And thirdly, we have a sight 
for restraint. So the Bible gives us a vision for our lives. It gives us a destination. Or as the moral philosophers say, the Bible gives us a telos, which is a destination. Because we can see where we're going. We can make decisions about how to be restrained so that we can keep going in the right direction and have the right priorities. Look at um, our Proverbs 29 verse 18, the first verse um, so the message, this is the message translation there. It says, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. Or here's another translation, translation. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. But blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instructions. And that word for revelation is literally sight. Where you can't see where you're going you will stumble all over yourself and you won't be restrained. If you don't know what it is that you are aiming for in your life, then you're going to make a whole lot of dumb decisions. But if you are obedient to the wisdom of God, then you'll be blessed. So what is our destination? Where are we going? At the Last Supper, Jesus said, I'm going to have to go and do a really important thing now. and I have to go away. And he was talking about going to the cross. And one of the disciples, Thomas, says, how do we know how to, where to go? I want to go with you. How do we know where to go? And Jesus answered with a multi-layered spiritual answer, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, he's the way, but he's also the destination. Because, because he is the way and the destination, Jesus is the end of all of our human desires. So our desires can get all mixed up and messed up and we can desire the wrong things. What we need to be doing is directing all of our desires onto him. St. Augustine said, walk like this human being. He's talking about Jesus. Walk like this human being and you will come to God. It is better to limp along on the way than to walk briskly off the way. And then he says, for one who limps on the way, even though they make just a little progress, is approaching their destination. But if one walks off the way, the faster they go, the further they get from their destination. St. Hilary said, and it's very rare to quote St. Hilary. St. Hilary said, he who is the way does not lead us off the right path. He who is the truth does not deceive us with falsehoods. And he who is the life does not abandon us to death. So because Jesus is the way and the destination, we have a vision so we can look through the telescope and see him for now and for then. We have a vision of the kingdom of God. So we can have kingdom priorities in our restraint. Let's think about this. Um, one area the whole world needs to be restrained in is the way we use, consume goods and, um, and destroy the planet. If you think about that, we need to be restrained in our use of, of, of fossil fuels and, um, because why? It's going to destroy the planet. And as Christians, we have a kingdom priority to care for the planet. God's given us this mandate to be stewards, good stewards. We have to look after the world. When we destroy the planet with with pollution, we we not only destroy uh, God's gift to us, but we also hurt people who are vulnerable, people whose lives are ruined by rising sea levels. 
So as Christians, we can say, because of this kingdom telos, this, this kind of vision for how the world should be that the scripture gives us, um, we as individuals and the church need to be restrained in what we do with our lives, in our use of power and products. We will be restrained in how we use our money, in which companies we might invest in who might be polluting the world. We will be restrained in how we use our cars. See how kingdom priorities work when we're looking through the, the site and working out how to be restrained. Another thing you might see as you look through the telescope, the site of how we're, where we're supposed to be going is, is having the kingdom priority of growing the local church. So how can we be part of a growing of a local church if we are so busy we have no time for the church community? So we might choose to be restrained in what job we do. We might be restrained in the hours we spend in our work. Too many Christians work long hours. They say to me, I can't come to the prayer meeting because I'm too busy with work. I'm at work till 8 o'clock. Or I can't mentor someone because I've got no time. But being restrained with your work and your time enables you to live out this kingdom vision now. In fact, when you look through the, tele- the telescope and you see the telos, <laughs> it's appropriate, isn't it? You, you see in Jesus the very personification of restraint. And this does not look like a rigid person, a tight or a frugal person, No, what you see is perfect love. Think of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind, which is being restrained with other people, giving them time, holding back your impatience, holding back your demands. Love does not envy. Instead of over-desiring what other people have, you're restrained in the knowledge that God is enough and he has given you what you need. Love does not boast. It is not proud. You are restrained with your own ego. Love does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. Why? Because love is restrained by the word of God and resists idols and looks to Jesus and rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And so see that there is an important partner of the virtue of restraint on the one hand you've got restraint and what goes with restraint if you flip the coin over is radical generosity radical lavish generosity restraint what it can't do is give itself over to the obsession of stinginess restraint does not mean i'm going to be stingy aristotle says that the the frugal and restrained life should be offset with radical generosity that lavishes on other people And this is what the gospel says too. Think of Jesus' rebuke to Judas when the woman breaks the perfume on his feet. And Judas says, we could have given this money to the poor. But Jesus praised her for a lavish act of blessing him. He said, she is is a broken person. She's had a sinful life, yet she knows how much she's been forgiven. And as a result, she's pouring out um, that, that gratitude onto Jesus. The religious disciples didn't even give him water to wash his feet. But this marginalised, lowly, sinful woman poured expensive perfume on his feet. 
And Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived a simple life, praises this lavishness of this woman. Even more beautifully, and this is where we will conclude, let's see this perfect image of God's restraint and lavish generosity in the story of the prodigal son. It's a glorious picture of God and who he is. The youngest son offends his father by asking for an inheritance. The father, who in the story is um, you know, an image of God, is restrained with his son. The f- he does not get angry at the son's request. He does not cut him off. He, he humbly hands over the inheritance and lets his son go. Then sometime later, after the son has allowed the over-desire of wealth and freedom and food and sex to overcome him, he returns to his father ashamed, sorry for his wrongdoing, sorry for how he had shamed and rejected his father. But what does his father do? He welcomes him home, puts a ring on his finger, a cloak on his back, and throws a big lavish party with amazing food and great rejoicing. And so just as God has been restrained with you and, and also lavish with you, so we all should imitate God this way. We all should pursue the virtue of restraint so that we can be lavish on people in a Christ-like way. We should be restrained in our life, not giving ourselves over to, over to idols, not being harsh with people, guarding our words so that we keep ourselves from calamity, like the proverb says, and then more than that, show over-the-top grace and love of God to other people, being radically generous, being restrained so that you can be a prodigal person. Let's pray for that. Lord God, thank you that um, we have a script for restraint and we also have a shield in restraint and then we have a sight for restraint. Thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, that we know by looking at him how we're to be restrained and pray that our church community can be one that's characterised by that twin virtue of restraint, being restrained and also lavish on others. Thank you that you've done that for us. Amen.